We somehow have to at least realize that there are ways forward. Culture, we hope, is one of the things that aspires at least to the better parts of ourselves. Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. This week, a battery of major and intimately related art shows are opening on the opposite ends of the planet. One is a historic exhibition across both Beijing's Central Academy of Fine Arts Museum and also a venerated Ming Dynasty temple outside the Forbidden City. The others are a pair of shows at New York's Listen Gallery. What unites all these events is that they feature the art of Anish Kapoor, one of the most famous artists in the world whose precisely engineered, perception-defying art is often epically scaled and has been displayed everywhere from the Venice Biennale, where he represented Britain in 1990, to the Palace at Versailles. But while Kapoor is renowned as an artist, he is also renowned for his strong political stances, which have led him to stand up against governments in Britain, India, and China to argue for the rights of migrants, dissidents, and the otherwise disenfranchised. Earlier this year, he even took on the feared National Rifle Association, and more remarkably, he won, forcing them to remove one of his artworks from an advertising campaign. Today, I am fortunate to be able to sit down with Anish Kapoor in his gallery just before his show opens to throngs of his waiting fans. Anish, thank you very much for joining me on The Art Angle. Pleasure. Good to be here. So I just had the pleasure of going through your show. It is filled with these spectacular, reflective objects that are precisely created and incredibly gripping to look at. And the center of the gallery is dominated by this massive sculpture that I can only describe as a giant mirrored Pringle. Can you tell me about this show and what you were aiming to achieve with this and what were the problems that you were proudest of overcoming to create the works in the show? This show, I think, is a series of propositions that are objects perhaps in transition, that are objects that are both very physical and present and uh, completely illusory. They, many of them have interiors that belie the thing that contains them. So it's something I've come to over years of work, this sense that what we know as the real world isn't so real, that objects are often not described by their physical or apparent physical realities. So void objects, negative spaces, involuted, upside down, inside out, those are things that seem to occur and reoccur for me. For some reason, I've been deeply interested in concavity. So that's negative form. Negative form originally as deep, dark, matte surfaces. And then in the last, I don't know, 25 years or so, with mirrored surfaces. I mean, one thing that's remarkable about your work is that because they are so precise and because they are so flawlessly executed, even though they're mirrored, the sense is that you can disappear into them. There is that experience of falling into an artwork, of really losing sense of your other surroundings and really being immersed by it. So let me put it this way. The traditional space of painting um, has, is always from the picture plane, deep beyond the wall, 
behind the picture. What concavity does, of course, is to take that space and put it in front of the object, which means that it automatically has vertigo. There is that point where light crosses over, you know, things are reflected upside down, and then you cross that point and then they're the right way up, and you kind of viscerally fall into them. I'm deeply interested in that as a notion. But of course, all these very precise objects are really only one side of my practice. The other side of my practice is messy, made of wax, cannons, shooting, and and all sorts of other things that are physical in other ways. You know, last night at Artnet Surya's anniversary dinner party, you gave a speech that really resonated with me, where you were saying how in this world of high-priced auctions and art fairs and this global art market, it's vital for an artist to remain radical. And I wonder, what is it that you mean when you say radical? Very, very hard problem, isn't it? Today, what's radical today? It seems that radicality, if that it really is a subject, can only come out of a truly formal discourse, and I choose my words carefully, a formal discourse with the nature of art making. It isn't radical because, if you like, it's spinning off into politics. It seems to me that those are questions, if you like, perfectly important questions, but questions aside from our main poetic ambition, which is to change the nature of art not just to say something new. And I've always felt that really in the end, I have nothing to say as an artist. I'm not, I don't really have some message for the world. It, it, it isn't the problem. I have a practice, a deep, real, actual, daily practice. And it's out of that practice that content, meaning, questions of real and unreal, et cetera, et cetera, arise. But it's only out of practice. So I do whatever I can to avoid meaning. Meaning, I mean, what I'm trying to get at is the sense that meaning arises because it must, not because I put it there. Very interesting. You know, you mentioned politics. And when I think of your gigantic audiences for your art, millions of people came through Tate Modern's Turbine Hall to see your Unilever commission there. Your audiences are global and massive, both in person and also on social media. You deliver art to these these people, but you also are very visible as a political pundit of sorts, of of an outspoken champion of moral and urgent causes. I wonder, how do you find your work and your politics Intermingling. How, how does one help the other and how do they fuse together or do, are they separate? Well, years ago, I kind of tumbled into the idea that it's possible to have a voice, politically, I mean. But I've always been rather clear with myself, I'm not interested in making agitprop. So there are two different things that happen. One is, this is what I am as an artist. I have nothing to say as an artist. I let the work do its thing. And the other is, of course, I have a voice and I will use it as best I can um, and fight for the causes as a citizen and as a human being alongside all compatriots of all kinds. I'll use my voice as best I can. And I think feel they're important, but they're different from each other. 
you say that you haven't created Agitprop, but I can think of one artwork that you made in response to a question from Artnet News after Boris Johnson was elected prime minister. And you sent us a delightfully ribald cartoon of sorts. Tell me about that artwork and tell me about your feelings about Boris Johnson and Brexit. Uh, the artwork was an image of a man with his, uh, so to speak, bits in a twist. You know, I titled it something about his Johnson in a twist. I've lived in Britain for 40-odd years. Oh, it's been good to me. It's a country and a people with a kind of sedate, I think, basic goodness. But something has happened. It's as if Britain's at war with itself. Psychically and otherwise, it seems to be grappling with the, the demons of nationalism, of xenophobia, of a will to see itself seemingly back in some colonial fantasy. It really is a disease of nationalism that seems to have emerged amongst us all over the world. I mean, you have your version of it here in the US. Boy, do we, yeah. Yeah, indeed. And, you know, Modi in India, the madman in Brazil, and you name it, or in so many parts of the world. What have we done to ourselves? Terrifying, difficult. But we somehow have to at least realize that there, there are ways forward. Culture, we hope, is one of the things that, that aspires at least to the better parts of ourselves. So while the democracies of the West are on fire everywhere, right now more authoritarian governments are also finding their power challenged in unprecedented ways. And you see this happening in China right now with the protests in Hong Kong. So you just opened one leg of your show in Beijing, the political capital of China, this week, and the next part of it is going to open, I believe, next weekend. What is it like to show, as an artist, to show in China today, in the capital of, of the country, and what do you hope to accomplish with the show? Difficult, difficult, I've got to say. You know, given where I stand politically, it feels like um, I know I'm putting my more than my toe in difficult waters here. So what does one say? I think um, politically, I can't agree with what's going on in China. I don't agree with what's going on in China. However, there's a real community of artists. There's a real aesthetic inquiry. There is real aesthetic inquiry. And it feels okay, at least at some level, to engage. Would it be better to not engage? I've asked myself this question quite seriously. And in the end, I think I've come out on the side, obviously have come out on the side of engagement. Well, it's not just artists who have to deal with this question. It's also businesses, the NBA, Disney, every business, every global business that wants to have a foot in China has to have a reckoning with these challenges. And you've had, in the past, you've had a, a somewhat potentially bumpy relationship with China due to your work with Ai Weiwei, who is a your gallery mate at Listen and who you have championed socially progressive causes with on several occasions. What Has he told you how he feels about your big because this is a major historic show for you in Beijing. I mean, it's strange. Uh, Weiwei and I have not discussed this subject. He has, I think, taken himself out of the Chinese context 
um, in the last many years. Uh, that's hard for him. And he's been vocal about what's going on in Hong Kong. And um, so he should be. It's a difficult piece. You know, it's a bit like, I don't know, doing a show in Saudi Arabia or somewhere where one has to negotiate very, very carefully and make a balance, take a, take a view of whether there's greater good to be done or whether it's better just to keep away. In the past, I have kept away. I have turned down more than one show in China, especially when I was very actively, when Weiwei was under house arrest and I was very actively um, supporting his release. Do I sense that it's changed a little bit? I hope it's changed a little bit. So on a lighter note, I want to ask you about another battle royale that you are engaged in that has been delighting audiences on both sides of the Atlantic. And of course, here I want to ask you, what is Vantablack? Vantablack, okay, I read a, a little piece in the newspaper about four, four, five years ago, which said that this fellow um, had discovered the blackest material in the universe. I wrote him a note and I said, uh, blackest material in the universe? I'm an artist, I want to use it. I've been engaged with the void object forever. Uh, you know, can we work together? And he wrote me back to say, oh God, no. It has, it has no visual application. And I said, um, his name's Ben. So ben, come on, Ben, let's, let's work at this. A very personable, good man. So we met and had a chat and began to look at the possibility. He then said, this material, of course, is made for the defense industry. It's highly... Top secret. So we got permission from the Ministry of Defense to use it aesthetically, which is, I think, a major achievement just there. And at the time, they were able to make little bits, maybe two or three inches in diameter, little bits that were made with this very, very black material. Now, what, let me explain the material. It's a nanomaterial that's put on to a surface. It's then put in what's called a reactor. The reactor causes the particles to stand upright, like a velvet, exactly. And what happens, of course, is that as the light enters, it gets trapped in these standing fingers, these tall trees, and it can't emerge. So this material absorbs 99.8% of all light, and it means that it turns light into heat. And so the object is ever so slightly warmer than the surrounding. So what we've done over the last years is to try and understand how we can enlarge the scale. So at the moment, we can make things about that big, which is, let's say, a foot and a half by a foot and a half and six inches tall. So we're working to try and get the scale up, to try and understand how to make more complex objects. So let me tell you what I'm after. I mean, I, I've said I'm in, engaged in this question of the dual nature of objecthood, real, unreal, physical, not physical, void, actual, etc. Malevich's proposition, Malevich, Kazimir Malevich, the great artist who painted the black square, was that objects are four-dimensional. Objects meaning, of course, his black square he's talking about, four-dimensional that is to say, three dimensions we can observe and then one that's spiritual, one that is other. I'll say that on one side. On the other side, in the Renaissance, there were two great ideas. One is, of course, perspective, which we all know about. And the other, equally important and equally interesting, is the fold. So many Renaissance painters, 
Mantegna or whoever you like, would use the fold, the fold in a piece of cloth. You know, Renaissance paintings have these beautiful folds. The fold is a sign of being. It's where the human being stands. So they stand in the picture, foreground or background, and then there's perspective, then there's deep space. The interesting thing about this material, this black, is that when you put it on a piece of cloth and you make a fold, the fold is invisible. You cannot see the fold. So I say this material is therefore beyond being. And so I don't make any small claim for it. It is a vast claim. So it is truly four-dimensional. It is truly beyond being. And of course, I'm Indian, so I would I love that kind of thing. Um, and that's the real aim. So uh, not dissimilar to the show out here, which is mirrored objects that are proposing ambiguity in space and in visually and otherwise. Weight and no weight, mass and no mass, um, illusion, reality. This black stuff does the same thing. So it's a near magical uh, substance and some artists say, Anish, share the Vantablack with us, but, but you have been keeping it proprietary. It's like, uh, I don't know, I work with a guy who makes stainless steel stuff and we've worked together for years and, you know, he works with me. He doesn't work with some other artist. He works with me. This is similar. Um, it's not a black paint that comes out of a tube that I've patented or whatever else. It's a highly technical, complicated, bloody ridiculously expensive process that we've been, you know, working our way towards um, trying to understand how to... What is a work? How do you make one? How do you make an object with this stuff? Um, yeah. Now, now there's an arms race among <laughs> other people <laughs> to create their version yeah. of Antiblack. And so yeah. Stuart Semple is yeah. this artist who seems to have a, a little bit of a, a bone to pick with you, who first created something he called the pinkest pink, which was allowed to everybody in the world except to Anish Kapoor. And then you very uh, humorously obtained uh, some of it and, and you dipped your middle finger in it and you posted a picture of it, which I'm sure delighted Stuart Semple to, yeah, to know. Yeah, I'm sure it. it did. And now he, he has a, a black 3.0, which he says rivals Vantablack, and he's displaying it in a store in London where there's a security guard who patrols the door with a picture of you who's instructed not to let you go in there and everybody has to sign a piece of paperwork that says that they won't share it with you. So I wonder, how are you going to overcome these ironclad defenses? Good luck to him. I've got nothing else to say on the subject. There isn't, I've never engaged with it. I do not, I don't feel it's worth engaging with. I mean, but good luck to him. Now there's another artist who's just collaborating with MIT who created a, a kind of a black paint that is apparently made a diamond disappear. Does that excite your competitive spirit? Oh, good. It's fine. I mean, I think, you know, this is technology, uh, of course. The, um, let's say art and technology, at least at these levels, are quite closely linked with each other and have always been, historically, have always been. Um, you know, the development of oil paint brought forward a whole other way to paint, to think about what, what an artist could do and so on and so forth. But likewise, good, good. Let's hope it moves the conversation forward. It's not about possessing the stuff. I think the thing to remember here is that what we do as artists is mythological. And we don't make objects. We make mythological propositions. And I think part of the mythological proposition here is that this is the blackest material in the universe. Is it true? Is it not true? 
Who gives a shit, to be honest? <laughs> the point is that it carries a sense of a kind of fiction. And what we know, of course, is that fiction is often more real than what's real. So, I mean, I think in a way, that's what I've been talking about since the beginning of our conversation. Objects that are and are not. Fictions that are real and real realities that are fiction, etc. So, Vanta Black or The Blackest Black or AK Black, if you like, mm-hmm. um, is a kind of fiction. That's a remarkable material and I look forward to seeing what kind of magical effects you're able to, to pull out of it. Thank you very much for joining us on The Art Angle. Pleasure. If you like this episode of The Art Angle, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. And if you have a moment, please rate and review us since that helps other listeners find our show. The Art Angle is produced by Tim Schneider and Caroline Goldstein, no relation, edited by Nick Long, and presented by Artnet News. I'm Andrew Goldstein. See you next week. 